Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Line 6. Line 6 is a musical instruments manufacturing company that specializes in guitar amp and effects modeling and makes guitars, amps, effects pedals, and multi-effects. We introduce the world's first digital modeling amp, and we're behind the groundbreaking pod, Multi-Effect, which revolutionized the industry with an easy way to record guitar with great tone. Line 6 will always take dramatic leaps so you can read new heights with your music and now your host al levy all right welcome to the unstoppable recording machine podcast i am al levy and with me is a very special guest someone who i've known for a few years and have looked up to for many more years basically i'd say one of the godfathers or kingpins of metal as we know it um person who which without i don't know if those of us who uh, love metal or make a living in metal would even have this life that we know. Um, it's Mr. Brian Slagle from Metal Blade Records, and I know that most of you already know who he is, and if you don't, uh, you probably should. And I know you've heard of bands like Metallica, bands of like Slayer. You've probably heard of bands like Cannibal Corpse or As I Lay Dying or between the buried and me or black dahlia murder the list just goes on and over the years of bands that he's either directly helped launch or indirectly helped promote or been a supporting cast member of like for instance who hasn't heard of lima god right um i just found out that uh brian was also instrumental in helping that come about um another huge band so this guy basically has helped shape metal as we know it, and he just uh, put out a book called um, called For the Sake of Heaviness, which I read uh, very quickly, actually. It's a very easy read, uh, but one thing I will say about it that besides it being a interesting history of this genre we know and love, it also has a lot in common with other biographies and autobiographies I've read about people who have done great things and there's some themes on that i'd like to explore but first i just want to thank you for coming on and for taking the time to talk to me yeah man thanks for having me yeah the uh i actually really enjoyed the book um like i was saying a second ago it was cool to to read about the history from someone who was there and it was also cool to find out about all the things you were involved with that I had no idea about like the promotional side of Metal Blade and how you guys kept it going even during the lean years it's just a very cool book all around and I recommend anyone in our audience to uh, to pick it up uh, there's a few things I wanted to touch on in there uh, that kind of I guess hit home for me. The uh, first one, the first theme was about perseverance. And you said that before you even knew that you wanted to start a label, you would go to 250 shows a year. Uh, and that you were basically living, breathing what existed of metal back in those days, but that you had no. Uh, no like goals of starting Metal Blade or anything like that. You were just in it because you loved it. Could you talk a little bit more about what drove you in the early days when you didn't have some sort of 
an end goal in mind or you weren't making money you were still living at your mom's like how did you keep yourself on track well yeah that's a, a good question i you know <clears throat> look i was just a huge fan of metal and uh, i couldn't play any instruments so being in a band was not an option for me <laughs> and you know i just i loved it so much and like i say i went to tons of concerts and i was just obsessed with the whole thing and i just was trying to do anything i could to help promote the music i love so you know i started a fan the first ever us fanzine the new heavy metal review and then started working at a record store bringing in tons of imports started helping the local radio station you know program their metal show started booking shows around LA. And then when I kind of realized that there was some sort of a scene in LA with, you know, bands like Molly Crew and Rat and Steeler and Bitch and everything, uh, I was so influenced and, and heavily motivated by the new wave of British heavy metal and their kind of do-it-yourself attitude that that's when I got the idea to put together a compilation album of local LA heavy metal bands. And again, doing none of this thinking that I'm going to have a career doing this or anything. All I really cared about was I love this music. I want other people to hear it. That's why working at a record store is a blast because, you know, people would drive in and I'd say, Hey, have you, you know, you like metal? Have you heard Iron Maiden? And they go, no. And I'd play like, Oh my God, this is great. Or have you heard, you know, accept or merciful fate or whatever it was. And people, you know, would just drive up and say, Hey, what's, what do you have that's new? That's cool. So that was really fun. And it was kind of the same thing with, with doing the, first compilation record was was just putting it out there and, and having people hear the music and realize what was going on in LA and again you know I was never thinking of starting a label or anything like that and uh, I was just doing it for the love of the music we were all doing it for that back then if you were if you'd have told any of us starting in you know 82 or 83 you know Slayer Metallica Motley Crue anybody that was in LA at that time that that this would go on to be such a huge thing and, you know, that we'd still be talking about all this stuff 35 years later. We all would have said, you're completely nuts. We were just all music fans who loved what we were doing and we're just lucky enough to be in L.A. at a cool time. That's a pretty strong love. I mean, how many years was it between when you first discovered it and, say, when you were making enough money to move out of your mom's house. <laughs> that was quite a long time. I spent three years actually in my mom's back of my mom's house in a garage that was air, not air conditioned, by the way, which is oh my God. really fun in Woodland Hills when it's 108 degrees in, in the summer. But, but I didn't, I just didn't care because I was living this really insanely fun life because I was involved in this music that I, tr that I truly loved. So I, and I was, you know, one man band. I did everything from, you know, the typesetting to the artwork, to producing the records, to making sure they got to the distributors, the manufacturing, I mean, everything was was just all me for those three years and I think back at that it was and it was seven days a week you know probably 18 19 hours a day and I look back like like oh, that, I must have been insane but I didn't care at the time it wasn't wasn't like this is a job or this is work it's like this is just really a lot of fun and uh you know and you kind of just have blinders on from everything else because there's so much so many cool things happening and working with so many great bands and starting to see the scene flourish and it took three years until we finally decided well I guess we it's big enough now where I need an assistant in, in a real office now. So it's crazy. I mean, but isn't that kind of what you find? Uh, I mean, your, your version of it was doing it all yourself for three years. A band's version is being in the van for a few years. A producer's version is, you know, maybe starting in a bedroom or in their mom's basement for a few years. Like, we all kind of have to do it in some way. We all kind of have to go through that stage in order to get to the next level. Um, 
And I think that the one thing that I've noticed among people who I know who have stuck it out and who have done something really, really great with their lives or something really cool is that in those first few years, what drove them was love for what they were doing. Yeah, totally. And you have to really, really love what you're doing. Because, yeah, same thing, you know, bands go their first tour. They're going to go out there in, in a van or a car, sleep on people's floors, but they don't care because they, they're doing what they love to do. And I'm not so sure that that mentality is still around today. I think that's a bit of an issue with why you don't see a lot more bands getting kind of bigger as time goes on. Because it's really, you know, a lot of people in this day and age, everything's, you know, instant gratification and having everything happen so fast. It's like you still have to pay your dues. And But when we were all paying our dues, we didn't really think we were paying dues. We're just like, we love what we're doing and we really don't care what the situation is because we all pretty much came from nothing anyway. So it wasn't such a big deal to, to have that struggle. So you, you touched on something interesting, which is that you're finding it hard to find bands that will pay their dues. What do you think paying your dues means for a band in this day and age? Is it the same as it was, like, say, when my band was trying to get signed in 2005? Or do you think that it's a different thing now? I think the, the problem is, is you know, we'll come across a, a really good band and, and we'll put out a record and there'll be some sort of, you know, buzz on it. And then they might go out on a tour and realize it's difficult. It's not easy. And I think a lot of bands now kind of think like, well, all I have to do is form a band, put out a record and all of a sudden everything's going to be great. And it's not that way. It takes a long, long period of time. And, you know, or you develop a band for a couple of records and they go on a couple of tours and they kind of get to the point where they're just ready to kind of make that next step. And, you know, well, I don't know, you know, my girlfriend wants me to stay home more. <laughs> my mom says I should go get a real job or, you know, all these excuses or it's really touring is really hard. And, you know, I mean, if you would, if, I mean, I never saw any of this back in the early 80s, and we were, we just didn't care. We'll do it no matter what. That was our singular motive, and we were so in love with it. And and a lot of times these days, you see that. I mean, really, in the last 10 years, we've not we've seen maybe one band kind of break through, and that's Ghost. And nobody else has really done it. A lot of bands have kind of gotten, you know, kind of to that point, and they haven't really done it, or you know, or they've gone the radio route, which is a whole separate thing. But um, yeah, it's it's interesting. What do you think sets Ghost apart? Well, I mean, they're doing something really different. Um, you know, musically, it's, it's very much harkens to the old school, you know, Bloister cult, that sort of, you know, late 70s, early 80s vibe. And then they've also got this amazing imagery and stage show. And, and, and again, you know, they love what they're doing. The main guy who's been, you know, doing this from day one is, you know, this, this is his passion. And, you know, he's got stuff going outside of, of the music, but his, this is his passion. He'll, he'll do whatever he needs to do to make it successful. And, you know, again, you don't see that as much now as you as I would like to see it, I guess. So I guess when you do finally come across it, it must be like, holy shit, breath of fresh air. Yeah. And but you still never know, you know, how these things are going to turn out. But it's yeah. I'm, ha I'm super happy that they're, you know, at the level they're at now. And they're, you know, they're definitely one of these bands that that look like in the next couple of years will really break through, hopefully. Well, speaking of not knowing how things will turn out, there's another theme that I found in your book, which uh, I find has a lot in common with other autobiographies and biographies I've read, which is the way that you handled uh, either rejection or uh, losing partnerships um, seems like you handled them in very, very positive ways. And one thing that I've noticed is people who do great things 
know how to take rejection, they learn how to take it, or they learn how to take splitting off from a former partner and how to spin it into something good um, or not get crushed by it. And, you know, you talk in the book about how eventually some of your bands left you and went to major labels, um, which I'm sure was not an easy thing to deal with. But you're still friends with these guys 30 years later, and it's still a very positive thing, and you still went on to do you know, more and more great things with the label. Whereas I know people who, you know, they get fired from a band and they never recover or they get fired off a record as a producer and they just can't, they just can't take it. And, uh, that, and that's kind of, that's it. it. It marks them forever. But, uh, you know, you talked a lot about losing these bands that you helped uh, build a career for. And then you just kept on going and even stayed cool with them. Like, can you talk about that a little? Um, Was that easy for you? Did you just do it naturally? Or was that a skill you had to develop? (laughs) Uh, I would definitely say it was a skill I had to develop. Look, I made a million mistakes starting out on this thing. I, I was a young kid. I had no background in business or anything. So you make a lot of mistakes. But also, you know, bands leaving. I mean, look. The, I, Metal Blade was a tiny little label in, in the 80s. And, you know, it was fun for me to see bands go on and be successful. You know, Armored Saint was the first band that we signed and did an EP with, and they got signed to Chrysalis. And I was happy for them because this is great. I mean, I can't compete with Chrysalis. Um, you know, so we didn't mind losing most of those bands, especially the ones that went on and had some success. It's kind of a bummer when they leave and it's not as successful and they, they end up coming back. But but I, I never looked at it like somebody stealing the band or anything. It's like, look, I'm, I want them to be successful. So if that means that that they have to go on to a major label, because at that point, the major labels could offer them way more than I could offer, it made complete sense. And I was just happy that the scene was getting better. And, and again, you know, ultimately, my bottom line is I'm in this because I love the music. And if I can help bands get to that next level, however that is, then that makes me happy. And, you know, certainly there are situations over the years where you you lose a band or something happens where you're, you're certainly at the time not very happy about it. But, you know, at some point, I mean, you know, the, these things happen and, you know, you have to, you know, have to move on from it. Because if, if you just dwell on all that sort of stuff, you're just going to dwell on negativity and it, it doesn't make any sense, especially as long, you know, if the bands go on to, to have some success or, or, or go to a situation where you think they can have success, then and that's ultimately my bottom line. You know, it's, it's interesting. The uh, CEO of a company that I've done a lot of work with called Creative Live, it's a, an online education company. Um, and the CEO is a very, very uh, inspiring type of dude. And one of his lines that I stole is, don't hate, congratulate, um, which is kind of similar to what you're saying here, which is, it doesn't matter that they left as long as they were going on to do something that grew their careers and grew the scene. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that, I mean, again, that's kind of the, especially starting out with all of these bands and people in the beginning, we all just were fans and we were happy when somebody had success because it means success for all of us. And I think it's still the case today. You know, if if a metal band, however they become hugely successful, that's great for all of us. That means that all of us are going to benefit from that. So I'm always, I'm always happy, you know, even bands that aren't on our label are are successful. I'm friends with a lot of bands that we never even worked with, but I'm 
you know, huge fans of theirs and they're nice guys. And so, you know, a band like Cody and Cambia, for example, I've been friends with them forever. I love them as a band. It's like, and I've never, we've never worked with them at all, but you know, it's great that they've had the success that they've had or the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, or there's a lot of those bands where I'm just a big fan of theirs and, you know, I became friends with them and happy they had success or, you know, Gojira or Meshuggah or whoever it, it, you know, end up may being. And we, I just happy as a fan that all these bands have more success. I mean, look, you know, my favorite band in the world's Iron Maiden. I'm, I don't work with them, but I'm, I'm happy for their success. You know, it's the way it should be. It's all for, all for the betterment of the overall music. Absolutely. And, um, I guess at the time when it is happening and it does feel uncomfortable, do you have any tips for people who may have just gotten kicked out of a band or lost a client or whatever to, uh, just keep going and keep trucking along and not get too wrapped up in it? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple things. I mean, number one, look at the bigger picture of, you know, what what are your goals? Like, if your goals, like, if you're a band member and your goals are being a successful band, then continue to go and, and find that. But also realize what happened in that situation. Like, why why am I not working with that band? Why did I get kicked out of that band? And learn from that, you know, because clearly if, if there's that situation, it means that either somebody gave, had, a, had a much better, was going to give somebody a much better deal than before, which if that's the case, then that's fine and just work up to Towards that, like just for example, you know, we lost all those bands in the '80s, and at some point we realized, okay, we're as much as we're happy these bands are having success, kind of sick of losing them, uh, <laughs> and we feel that, that you know that we could provide them a, a good place to be if we had major distribution. So that's when we partnered with Warner Brothers, and then you know a little bit later, as it is now, partnered with Sony, so we can kind of you know give a band the the, the best of both worlds—a really independent, familiar, family-style uh, label that you can be on, and also have the benefits of having the, the major distribution. So we kind of learn from you know why were the bands leaving? They were leaving because we were a smaller label without major distribution. Well, how do you get to that? So I think it's just all about the, the end goal and the bigger picture. If you look at that and keep that in, you know, keep the goal in, in, in your mind and, you know, your, any path to any goal, you know, it's, I guess you can equate it to climbing a mountain. You know, if you're going to climb a mountain, it's not going to be easy and there's going to be missteps and there's going to be things that are going to happen, but you just keep looking at the top going, well, that's where I need to be. How do I get there? And you kind of, if you keep at it, you'll eventually get there. That actually segues perfectly to the third theme I found in your book, which was pivoting. Um, and what I mean by that is, uh, you know, with your mountain analogy, probably if you chart a course from the bottom to the top, even if you chart a course that's a straight line, you're going to have to deviate multiple times on your way to that peak. And you successfully did that multiple times, like, for instance, starting Death Records, uh, which I didn't even know about till I didn't even realize what that was until I read the book. But uh, that was your imprint for bands that didn't want metal associated with their name, which is really, really smart. Or starting the, the promotional wing of Metal Blade to help bands that weren't signed to you guys, but still allowed you guys to, to work with them. Those are excellent pivots to um, keep you in the game and keep you doing the things you want to do without, you know, maybe it's not exactly the 100% goal uh, as you originally saw it, but it kept you moving forward. It kept the momentum and kept, you know, kept things evolving. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Is that something that you, uh, that you set out to do? Was it a natural thing for you to pivot? That what intelligently? 
<laughs> it definitely wasn't. We didn't really set out to do that. But, you know, you're, you're presented with situations and you go, okay, well, how can we make this situation work? And that's, you know, kind of a, a bigger you know, thing just in business, because you're going to always have situations and it's like, okay, well, how can we make this work? For example, you know, back when we, when I saw DRI open for Slayer, this really amazing punk band, I love them. They were great guys and wanted to work with them. We just would love to work with you, but we can't be on a metal label because in 1984, 85, punk band, if they were on a metal label, everybody would say they're, you know, what is this? This is ridiculous. We couldn't do that. So I said, well, how about if we did a subsidiary label that didn't have metal in, in there and we wouldn't have the metal blade logo on it at all could we do it that way and they said sure so that's when we started death records and we signed dri coc dr no the mentors cryptic slaughter you know a whole bunch of really cool bands that were all these punk bands that we would never be able to work with except for the fact we had this subsidiary label and once we signed dri kind of you know that was the the first you know domino that kind of fell because other bands would go like oh wow dri signed with them well okay cool then coc goes well, sure you know that's cool that you have dri because they're friends and i first found out about dri through slayer because they loved them and they actually had them open a couple shows in LA, which I was like, are you sure you want a punk band open? Like, yes, we want them. I'm like, all right. And it worked. Like the, the metal kids loved it. It was a, it wasn't what I thought it might be. So, so there's a situation where we wanted to work with some bands and we had a, we couldn't do it the way we wanted to do it. So we kind of, you know, created a scenario where, where it would work. And the same thing was going on in the whole grunge movement in the nineties where, I mean, I love that movement. I think that it needed to come in and, and kick whatever. I mean, metal was kind of a joke at that point. All, it was hair bands, and peop, so many people were involved in the scene at that point that knew nothing about the music, and half of the bands didn't even play on their records anymore. And it was just, it was a, a joke of itself. So it needed to kind of go back underground. And, you know, the grunge thing kind of wiped it off the, the planet. But from my perspective, it's like all those bands, Alice in Chains, Faith No More, Soundgarden. I mean, these bands were all metal bands. They just looked differently, and they had a different, you know, vibe about them. But it still was heavy guitar-based stuff. So, and I loved all those bands. And we tried to sign uh, by the Love Bone really early on, which was the big first big band out of Seattle that uh, two of the guys, Stone and Jeff, ended up forming Pearl Jam with. And and they were really amazing with this phenomenal lead singer who unfortunately overdosed on heroin, and that kind of obviously derailed them. But we started working with that band. We tried to sign them to, to Cat. We were working with Capitol Records at the time, and they didn't really work out. But when they put out their first uh, their first EP and then their first album because we had such a good relationship with them. We said, let us, let us uh, help you with this because we can go to college radio, we can go to these underground magazines and get you press and get you played on all these and that'll help you. So against once we did that, then when these other records started coming out, people said, oh, you guys work with Mother Love Bone. That's cool. I said, yeah, we can do the same thing for you. And um, in the Faith No More situation, we were at Warner Brothers and when we did that deal, part a couple components of that deal was one, we could raid their catalog, which we did. And two was, we will act as your underground marketing arm. And one of the first records that came out that we wanted to work on was The Real Thing by Faith No More, which just came out on Slash and nobody really knew much about it, but I thought the record was amazing. I said, let us work it. And we did all the marketing promotion for the first six months on that record before it really started to take off. So it was just, you know, again, we wanted to work with these bands. Certainly couldn't sign them to our label or they are already signed, but like, here's an avenue that we can, we can work with them and help them and still be involved in, in what we love. I, I think that everybody listening should internalize that and 
see how they can apply that to their own production careers. Uh, the majority of the listeners of this podcast are aspiring producers and some pros as well. But um, I think that in this day and age, uh, you really need to think about how you can still uh, stay in the game with what you do, even if it's not the uh, 100% original stated goal, uh, because you get to do cool things. And it, it, I didn't know that you had anything to do with the real thing until I read the book. And uh, that was one of my formative records. So uh, thank you. Oh, awesome. yeah, uh, amazing, for, amazing record. Yeah, uh, yeah, for real. Um, that uh, that kind of that's one of the records that definitely changed my life. Um, it, because I wasn't kind of wasn't allowed to listen to heavy music when I was a kid, and that song made it through onto normal people radio. <laughs> uh, epic. Yep. And uh, so it was like my first taste of something heavier. Um, and I was just instantly drawn to it and wanted it to come back on the radio. I taped it off the radio. And that was kind of my introduction to heavy music. So, I mean, that's that song basically started this, uh, this weird path. So uh, thank you for that. <laughs> no worries, uh, man. That's awesome. I have a, a few questions from our listeners for you. Um, this one is from Luis James Flores, and he's wondering, Hi, Brian. As an aspiring producer, I know that it's very important to have a good relationship with record labels. What would you say are the best things a producer can do to keep the labels happy? Well, I mean, <laughs> the obvious things like, you know, when you're making a record, come in on budget, and <laughs> those sort of things are very helpful. But, you know, I think, you know, if you're a, if you're a fan of the music, that's really, I mean, at least for us, I mean, look, it's the same way for all the metal labels. We're all fans of the music, so, and we love working with producers that are fans of the music as well. So I think, you know, really, it's, if you're a fan, just, just let's, let's meet you as a person. You know, let's talk about music, let's hang, let's hang out, and that's, you know, because we like, it's a people business, Ultimately, we like working with people we like. So, um, you know, feel free to make a con feel free to make contacts. You know, talk to the label people about music. You know, bands you like, stuff you like, and then there's a, then there's a personal thing there. And then it's like, oh, by the way, you know, I also do this production work, and it's like, oh, cool, awesome. I know that guy; he's really cool. It, that happens a lot. You know, a couple friend, a couple guys who have become really close friends with uh, a guy like Jay Rustin, or you know, I, I could go on with a bunch of people. But we love working with people like that because we know them. The staff is comfortable with them, and they do. Great really great work and it's kind of a perfect relationship jay is an incredible producer mixer by the way that guy is just top of the line and a great dude too yeah he's on fire <laughs> yeah for like for real um i have a similar question here from eric burt is saying from a production standpoint what makes a record stand out for you are there certain sonic characteristics that a producer can pay attention to when mixing a band who plans to shop themselves to Metal Blade, for instance? Well, I think a couple things. I think the first and foremost, you have to have, have the band sound like the band so that when you listen to it, you feel like, okay, I'm hearing what the band sounds like. It's, it's, I think it's really difficult now because, you know, there's so many bells and whistles and you can make things sound really cool and slick and, and nice. And I kind of miss, especially on, on demo stuff, sometimes miss hearing the band itself because when I hear it sometimes you're like it's really good it sounds good but it's just it's almost too polished it's too perfect it just doesn't feel like like this is really what the band's essence is and then you hear something else it's a little more I, I mean raw might be the 
a bad example, but it's just a little less produced, a little more raw. It's like, okay, this sounds like, like, like a real band. And that makes me really happy. And I mean, it's the same thing with really, you know, making a record. I think the, the, all, the constant struggle with, with making a record from, from day one until now is, especially if you have a band that's a really great live band, is how do we get that energy and sound of the band live in the studio so when people listen to the record, they, they, they feel that. And that's, you know, that's, a, that's the trickiest thing, you know, as a, as a producer and engineer is getting those sounds on tape and getting those performances on tape that sound really good and sound like the band. So when you go see them live, it's like, oh man, that, you know, this sounds a lot like the record. This is cool. That raw vibe, that's actually what I really like about the Goat Whore records, for instance, is that they don't sound overproduced. Uh, they don't sound like uh, like slick computerized creations. They just sound like a, a nasty band. Yeah, it sounds badass. like yeah, it sounds like them. Sammy's got a really interesting guitar tone, and you hear it, you know, as soon as you put it on, it's like, up. Oh, it sounds like Godor. and that's ultimately, yep. I think, a big, a bigger, broader picture and problem these days is, you know, so many bands just sound the same. I was, I was hanging out with, you know, I spent a couple nights with Slayer guys, and went to dinner with Carrie the, the night before one of the shows, and 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 we we're kind of talking as we often do, like, you know, where are all these new bands? Because you know, he'll get in a couple bands, and something would happen, and he said the same thing. It's like everybody, everything just sounds so much the same like you put on a record and you're not sure who it is it's so rare that you know if you put on pantera you know who it is you put on metallica you know who it is put on slayer you know who it is those bands have their own sounds and i think it's becoming more difficult for bands to to cultivate their own sound but that's really and you know it's a really tough thing to do and that's a, a big another big quandary we have again with production and engineering where it's so easy to make everything sound really good which we want it to sound good but it also has to have some uniqueness to it too there are some bands i think like you hear Meshuga, you know who they are you hear gojira you know who they yep. are o opeth yep ghosts you know you know those bands so they are out there but i know exactly what you're saying and i think that it's because also in part because of the uh the home recording revolution where it's so easy to record yourself or to become recorded. And I realized that my company has helped uh, spread this. But, and uh, I do think that part of the part of the reason that you're hearing things sound the same is because the barrier to entry for recording is lower than ever. And so uh, you're not, lots of the bands aren't getting to producers that will take the time to uh, give them their own sound to explore that they're not uh, lots of dudes are recording themselves or you know going to guys that aren't that skilled yep um, and I think that that's part of the problem I don't think that's going away though um, uh, because I don't think that there's gonna suddenly be less people recording themselves kind of like with downloading or or you know, I know that we're moving to streaming, but I, you know, I don't think that the trend is going to suddenly reverse itself and CDs are going to come back or something. Um, I think people are going to need to learn how to make it work for them. I agree. It's tough, though. Um, here's a question from Maximilian Scheffler, which is, what do you think are the benefits of being signed to a record label as opposed to releasing stuff on your own in this day and age? 
Well, really what we've become as record labels is, you know, the traditional record label is a little, is obviously not the same way. It used to be, you know, we'd sign a band and you'd get, provide them with everything and, you know, do all this different work. And it's a lot different now because a band could conceivably record something and put it out there on their own. So what we've kind of morphed into and, you know, us and certainly all the other independent labels have done is we really almost are like a service company where like when you sign with a label, you know, you get the traditional record deal and all that sort of stuff, but you get a, a, a massive team of people that are going to help promote your record. And we've taken a lot of time to really cultivate our social media and, and a lot of these things to really help benefit the band. And we have, you know, more Twitter followers, Facebook likes, uh, Instagram, all this sort of stuff than a lot of the other labels because we've been doing this for a long time. We have a whole team of people that, that do this as now do all, all the other labels. So when you sign on to, to a label, you're getting, you know, however many, you know, 25, 30 people that work for the label are going to be involved in helping your band get to the next level. And then you accentuate that out to, you know, the distributors and all the other partners we work with. And you, you have a team of like a couple hundred people. They're going to help push, push your brand up as, as big as it can be. And I mean, it sounds kind of corporate, but what we do now is we're brand builders. And we feel that the bigger the brand of the band is, the more concert tickets, t-shirts, whatever you're going to, you know, music, everything, you're going to make more of it because you have this massive team of people. And I've talked to bands that have done crowdfunding campaigns and stuff. And I said, how do you like it? It's like, well, it was great. And we made great money. But now all of a sudden, you know, I'm manufacturing albums. I'm, you know, I'm putting them in mailers. I'm mailing them out. I'm having to call radio people. I'm having to hire all these other people to do marketing promotion for me. It's a lot of work. And I go, well, yeah, that's, would you do it again? Like, I don't think so. (laughs) Cause it's not easy to do especially if you get up to a certain level and you even look at, you know, like Prince and, you know, famously these other people try to do it on their own Radiohead, and they eventually go, you know, we need to go back to the label because there's just so many other services that are provided by that, that you really have to have that team behind you if you're going to have any success. Well, it's like, if you get big enough or you are big enough to where you're doing it all yourself, uh, basically it's not like the guys in the band, you know, if you're big enough can, actually do it all themselves so they'll have to outsource and hire a bunch of independent contractors to do all the stuff a label would do and then at that point why not just be on a label yeah, I mean, unless, you know, I mean, Metallica is kind of doing it that way now where they have their own label, but they have a, a massive team of people that they that they hired and support and, the, and their management company does. It takes, you know, because they're so huge, they can kind of do it and make it work, but it's really difficult. And then you're just, or you're just, you know, partnering with a label and saying, okay, well, you know, we need all these services. So just like do all these services and we'll pay you for it. So it's, you know, either, either way. And you, but you can only do that at a really super high level. I think otherwise just, you, you need, you know, my feeling is, you know, you, you're a band, you need to concentrate on your music and your live show and doing all the things you need to do. You don't need to be talking to all these other various people down the road. You need it to, and really this day and age, you need a team of people working together to get you to be successful. I, I look at it like a car. If you have four wheels on a car, all moving in the same direction, that car is going to go fast. So if you can find a label, a management company, an agent, a lawyer, and a band all on the same page, all with the same goals, that, that car is going to move really fast. If you have any one of those elements not there, then it's like having a flat tire. You're not going to go anywhere. I remember, and this is kind of funny, um, when uh, my band was no longer on Roadrunner, we were searching for a label back in like 2009. And I went to the Metal Blade office and I sat down in Faley's office. And that's exactly why he told me you guys wouldn't sign us. <laughs> he was like, we like the band. 
And obviously, we can provide the tire, like the label tire, but you're, we've got no good management, <laughs> and no good agent. Your car won't run. You need all four tires. So uh, well, at least, at least I, he was honest. <laughs> oh yeah, I totally appreciated that, dude. It's never bothered me ever when someone gives it to me straight. Like I always appreciate that. Always have. I mean, you know, same kind of like what we were talking about earlier. Like if one thing's not going to work out, it's good to analyze why in a very uh, I don't want to say cold, but in an emotionless way. Realize why you're in the situation you're in. And then do something to fix it or uh, figure something else out. And uh, I really did appreciate him taking the time to tell me that he didn't he didn't have to do that. He could have given me a California no. You know, for anyone not listening, I mean, for anyone who doesn't know what the California no is, that's when someone says, yeah, 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 it's cool, it's cool, it's cool, and then just, like, never gets back to you. <laughs> so, yep, uh, there you go. Yeah, he didn't have to take the time to, like, say, look, your band's cool, but uh, you got no future because of this and this, and so we're not going to sign you. Um, that that was great. Um, it, it actually that made that helped solidify that I was going to move to Florida and do the production thing for a few years, um, which was the reason that I'm doing what I'm doing now, which is the best thing that could have ever happened to me. So I always appreciated him. Uh, rejecting me to my face and giving me that analogy, which I think is one of the best analogies I've ever heard for a band uh, being successful or not, because I can't tell you how many times I've seen bands, um, you know, come through the studio or whatever, who they've got really cool music or a label cares about them, but their manager is a shithead or their agent's a shithead and it just doesn't work. Or they've got a cool manager and the band is cool, but it's a shitty label. And nothing happens. So you're absolutely right. They all have to be in alignment, in harmony, in order for the vehicle to run. Yep. Um, here's one from Jeff Gaston, which is uh, curious as to where the Goo Goo Dolls signing in their early punk rock years into their beginnings as college alternative rock band fit into the Metal Blade brand. I don't remember any other punk rock bands in your catalog. Also, how did the legal battle between Metal Blade and the Goo Goo Dolls affect future contracts between your label and artists? Well, yeah, well, obviously we did. We had, you know, Goo Goo Dolls were another band that was on Death Records as well. So, you know, we had DRI, COC, and all the bands I mentioned before. And the Goo Goo Dolls were, so uh, Mike Fetty, who mentioned earlier, uh, has a connection and he grew up in Buffalo. He has a, a really good connection there that brought us both Cannibal Corpse and the Goo Goo Dolls. Uh, he brought the Goo Goo Dolls to one of our A&R guys, uh, William Howell, uh, the first record they put out. And William thought it was really cool. He came to me and said, hey, I really like this band from Buffalo. They got a cool vibe. What do you think? And I listened to the record. So this is really cool. It's like kind of a cool, like, you know, punk rock vibe, a little melodic, but they were just really fun. And uh, we saw them live and they were incredibly fun and amazing live. So we ended up signing them just because we thought this is a really cool band. Like what they're doing. It's super punk rock. And back then when they first started, it was, you know, no ballads, all punk rock. Robbie, the bass player, sang half the songs. Johnny sang the other half. And they're this really just cool, fun, you know, punk rock band that we really liked. And then as time went on, you know, they kind of got bigger and bigger. And we felt, we always felt that they were going to be really big. We, they, we just, they, 
the vibe was just there and it was eventually going to happen. Then we, when we part, was partnered with Warner Brothers, we were both working to really make this thing happen. And on the, the big breakout record, A Boy Named Goo, uh, it's, it's kind of funny. I talk about this in the book as well, where Johnny had this song name that he had just written. It's an acoustic song and he kind of wrote it just at the very last minute. And he, they recorded it when they're making the record. And he said, hey, listen to this. I'm not sure if I should put this on the record or not. What do you think? And I go, oh, I mean, it's a good song. Uh, why not put it on the record? It's a great song can't hurt. So we put that on the record. And then one day, Kevin Weatherly, who was the, the uh, program director of K-Rock in LA, which at the time was the radio station in LA, he just out of the blue one night decided he was going to play name on the radio station and see what the reaction was. He played it and it went through the roof and the band exploded from there and then kind of went into their, you know, uh, uh, I guess adult rock or act, whatever you want to call where they're at now. So they, they kind of took a little bit of a turn. But if you go back to those early records we did, I mean, it's a really just a cool punk rock, cool fun punk rock band that, that went in that direction and uh, you know like anything happens when a band gets super successful everything has to change and you know that's kind of the the road that happened with the Google Dolls, where you know they got super successful, so they wanted to renegotiate all the contracts, which is which absolutely happens, and all that stuff got sorted out, and everybody's happy in the end, and didn't really change our, our agreements or, or anything. We we didn't change the agreement because the agreement was was not a good agreement. It's just well, you know, once a band gets to that point, things things change. We do that all all, all the time, and we've you know we continue to do that sort of thing. You know, it's interesting that you say that. Uh one thing that I think a lot of uh, baby bands don't understand uh, is that if you become successful, your initial deal will probably get renegotiated. Um, and it, lots of times you do have to accept a deal that wouldn't be as good as a deal that, say, a huge band will get because label is assuming a majority of the risk in the situation. There's no way to know what's going to happen with your band and label has to invest a ton of money to help get you off the ground. Well, it's just, it's just like if you're starting a job and you're, you know, you're, you're, you know, a young kid and you have no experience and you go into a job, you're going to start at an entry level salary doing an entry level stuff. And then as you get successful over the years, you go up, you make more, you make more and more and more. And same thing with, with bands too, is you, you get on the kind of entry level, you know, contract that most bands get when they first start out. And then as it gets bigger and bigger, you renegotiate it and you get more money and, and better deal points. And I mean, that's just, that's just the way it's always been. Like I said, it's no different than, you know, working a job. And, and moving up the ladder that way. Yeah, and that's, man, it's so, I don't know if this annoys you, but it annoys me when I hear people telling uh, s small bands to not take, not take deals from reputable labels for reasons like that and uh, advise them to go for, like, major band type of deal points. Um I, I don't know if you've encountered this, but I've definitely seen it um, on my end at the studio with bands that are in the process of getting signed or just reading articles online from people advising bands. Or uh, Have you ever seen that? Have you guys lost any bands who you were trying to sign who just wanted way too much for their level? Yeah, all the time. I mean, not as much now as we probably used to see it back, like, you know, certainly in the 80s. And, you know, we've, we've seen that before. 
And the problem with that is that nine times out of 10, those bands don't ever become successful because you've already set the bar so high that if your first record comes out and it doesn't do really well, which a lot of times first records don't, especially this day and age, you know, all of a sudden you owe the label a lot of money and, you know, the manager's not making any money and nobody's really making any money. So you, you don't really have a chance to, you might not even have a chance to make a second record. And if you do, it's probably going to be significantly less than what you did on the first one. And you're already putting yourself, setting yourself up to be in a bad position where just a lot easier to go in. And again, if you got the right team behind you, everybody wants this to be successful and everybody wants the bands to, to, to make money and, and have fair deals down the road. And, but you have to do your due diligence with, with the labels, you know, whatever label you're talking to, like, look, you know, what do bands say about the label? What do bands have been on it before? Have they ever, you know, had issues, you know, that sort of thing. And then you kind of know going in where things are at, but you know, all of us metal labels, we're the same thing. If you, you're going to sign to a, a deal, you start to sell records, it's going to be a lot better. And then you're in, you're in, the, in the control position. Because I, I tell all the bands all the time, like, we work for you. You don't work for us. You don't work for your managers. You don't work for the lawyers. Lawyers, managers, merchandising companies, labels, we work for you. So you're in a better position if you start selling records to be able to work out a better deal for labels. Cause all of us, you know, want the bands to be happy. The last thing you want to have is an unhappy band, the label, it's not good for anybody. So, you know, we, we want it to be happy. Like I said, just, just like if you were working at a company and you start doing well, you should be compensated and the employer wants to compensate you because you're doing a good, a good job. It's interesting. The whole thing about, uh, the, you know, the industry working for the bands. And I know that's true, but, I can tell you that at the time when I first had my first manager and first deal, people would say that to me, but I was too afraid to to put that to like, you know, use that card. Like I didn't even know how we could use that card because I didn't know anything about how things worked. So uh, that's a tough card for uh for a new band to really understand like you know, if their manager says you should do this or label says you should do that, um, it's hard. It, it's hard to be like, actually, no, uh, you work for me and I say no or something. Well, it's yeah, but, it's but tough. I, I would totally say, though, that we've had situations with with bands where either the manager or us will say, like, hey, what do you guys think about doing this? And they'll come back and say, no, that's that's not really us. And it's like, all right, well, I mean, you know, it's ultimately their their decision. So, you know, we, mm-hmm. we, we do see that s- sometimes. And, you know, a lot of the bands that are really have a have a conviction about what they want to do will, will tell you that. I mean, it doesn't have to be like, you know, you work for me sort of thing. But I, I think a lot of bands feel that they are working for everybody else when it's really like we're working for you. We want to make you happy. So, you know, we want you to be successful and do what you want to do. And that that sometimes, you know, it's also just just obviously being a band is one thing and being and it is a music business. So you do have to have business. And I always tell bands, like, just get at least one guy in the band to read some business books or law books or something, just so you have <laughs> some sort of knowledge. Because if you, unfortunately, if you kind of leave it in everybody else's hands, that's a recipe for, for disaster, if there ever was one. A perfect example, um, in my opinion, of, of someone who really has their shit together uh, business-wise, is uh, Brian from Black Dahlia. One of the uh, most uh, professional and business-minded dudes I've met so far that's in a band. 
Yeah, um, and and that's ultimately why they're successful because you've got a guy yeah. in the band that, that's controlling. I mean, you know, Metallica with Lars, the Rolling Stones with Mick Jagger. I mean, you every major band there's one guy in the band that's kind of running the the business show, and that's how it eventually all all works because it's ultimately it's all about the, the band your band itself. Can you think of a single band, and I don't mean that you need to name them or whatever, but can you think of a band that you've worked with where there isn't the one guy, like a successful band? Can you think of one that doesn't have the one guy in it who has the business vision and skills? Nope, not a one. (laughs) Yeah, I'm trying to think if I've known any bands where there isn't one guy or even two who have that on lock, and I can't think of any. Yeah, I, I can't think of any either. I mean, it's, you know, successful bands, no, because I, I don't really know that you can be a successful band without having a, a one or two guys. And you don't want too many of them, because I've seen that happen, where you get two or three guys in a band that all want control of the business thing, and that ends up kind of being a disaster, because then, you know, there's eventually becomes a power struggle, and somebody gets kicked out of the band. <laughs> Well, yeah, you, you definitely don't want the other extreme as well. Yeah, so it's it's a it's a careful uh, uh, a careful balance there. Yeah, I think Brian has done it perfectly over the years. Um, I when uh, when I recorded the drums on one of their records and I went to his house for the week in Detroit, I was blown away by just how tight that operation is, um, and I would always. Uh, mention them as an example to tiny bands that would come to the studio and who wanted to do big things and were talking about getting buses and I was like you are you sure you want a bus like if you look at a band like Black Dahlia who could be in a bus most of the time they ride in vans because they want to own homes uh so you know you need to choose do you want a bus or do you want to own a home um and I was just to this day blown away by how he makes that work it's uh it's a testament to what you're saying i think absolutely 100 percent so uh last question this one's from casey collie and he's asking when wanting to eventually work in the music industry uh approximately how do you think i should divide my time working on say charisma and networking versus real skills i find i have to put in a lot of work to be social yeah, I mean, you know, like I mentioned before, it, it is a people business, so there is those relationships out there. I mean, I don't know, it's hard to quantify, like, what percentage you should work on in, in any of these things. I think, you know, the bottom line, I tell anybody that wants to get into the music industry, whether it's in a band or in, in any of their categories, that the number one most important thing, you have to really love the music. If you really, really love the music, and that's your goal for being in the industry, then you're going to be successful. So that that's the number one most important thing. And and then all these other skills will will kind of you know will come in. I mean, if clearly if you're you know if your your goal is to be a recording engineer producer, the the core of that is you do need to have the skills to be able to to work all the equipment and stuff. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, But once you have that done, then you know the networking thing is is very very important because it, it is a people business and you know we like to work with people we like and you know you could be the best recording engineer in the world but if you're operating in a vacuum where nobody knows that you exist then that that's going to be very difficult so so there, there is a bit of, there is a bit of give and take there i mean you know i spend an exorbitant amount of my time you know hanging out with the bands and 
going to functions and meeting people because you'll just, I mean, just the other night I was at Slayer in, in LA and I was hanging out at the Forum Club in between bands talking to a bunch of people. I was talking to, to this one guy and, and we came up with this really interesting idea about doing some really cool stuff that he's kind of been wanting to do. And I said, I'm completely on board. And just out of that, you know, five minute long conversation at a show, something really cool, very, very well may happen out of that. So, so there, there is a lot of that stuff. I, I find it, you tend to do a lot more business that way than, you know, just emailing or social mediaing or any of that stuff, which is all important, of course, but ultimately, you know, being, being fa even in this, in this day and age where it's all, you know, digital and social, it's really easy not to be, you know, have that human touch. Nobody talks on the phone anymore, which is fine. I, I kind of like text me. I'd rather text than talk on the phone anyway, but, yeah, um, totally. but seeing somebody face to face, sometimes you come up with interesting ideas. So that, that element is pretty important as well. Well, you know, I think it also needs to be said that metal kind of being a counterculture should, has typically appealed to kids that don't have the best social skills and aren't necessarily the popular kids in school or whatever. So I wouldn't worry about it too much. That's kind of almost accepted. The, you just have to make a little bit of effort. But there's a lot of there's a lot of leeway granted, I've noticed, for people who uh, aren't necessarily your traditional life of the party. I met lots of guys that are socially awkward who do great in the scene. Oh, totally. But but we're but we're all the same the same way. I mean, I was not Mr. Popular in high school or anything. I hated high school. I never went. And you <laughs> know, but but when you get into this world, it's you know that it's a it's a huge metal family, and we're all a little off. We're all those kind of people. So you're you're like welcomed. It's like wow, these people are all like me. So I tell that to people like you said that are you know shy or social awkward or whatever. I mean, we're all that way. So it's not like you're walking into a room where the people have expectations. It's kind of like, we know how that is. We've, we've all been there. So we're all kind of on the same level when it comes to that. Yeah. So just don't be a shithead and, and be Basically, good at what you yes. do. Yes. <laughs> if you want to break it down, just don't be a shithead. There you go. Well, Brian, thank you so much for coming on, taking the time to talk to me. Once again, I really enjoyed the book. It's for the sake of heaviness. Um, anyone who I think just wants to get a good history of the scene that we're a part of and also, uh, you know, get some good insights on what it takes to build something great and actually stick it out through the years. It's a, it's a great book for that. And it's an easy read. I don't, I listen to books now. I don't read that often, but I read this in, uh, one night. And, uh, that to me is perfect length. So, so yeah, I, I highly recommend it. Yeah. Thanks for that. I tried to, you know, somebody, a couple people have said like, how come you didn't make the book any longer? I go, look, it's a book about a record label. It's, it's, perfect. Not, it's not the most exciting thing. So I wanted people to be able to read it in a you know, sitting or a flight or whatever. So, so thanks for that. I, I appreciate that. That was one of the reasons why I wanted to make it an easy read, which is cool. Dude, an easy read is everything these days. Cause like for real, I do consume lots of books, but uh, most of them are, audio because I'm either driving from, you know, driving eight hours or flying somewhere or whatever. And, I, you know, reading just, I can't read while I drive yeah. or whatever. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and I don't like to do it on flights. I just like to sit back and listen to stuff. So uh, things have to be an easy read for me to actually get through them.
Cool. Well, um, well there will be an audio book. Was... Oh, sorry. There will be an audio book, but it doesn't come out until sometime next year. I guess that's the way it, the, these things go. That's what the publishers tell me. So. Oh, okay. Well, get that as well. <laughs> Cool. So thank you, sir. Thank you so much. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Line 6. Line 6 is a musical instruments manufacturing company that specializes in guitar amp and effects modeling and makes guitars, amps, effects pedals, and multi-effects. We introduced the world's first digital modeling amp, and we're behind the groundbreaking pod multi-effect, which revolutionized the industry with an easy way to record guitar with great tone. Line 6 will always take dramatic leaps so you can reach new heights with your music. Go to www.line6.com to find out more about Line 6. To get in touch with the URM podcast, visit urm.com slash podcast and subscribe today.